Thanks for listening to the GCC Sermon Podcast. We'd love to meet you for worship on Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visit georgetownchristian.org for more info. Good morning, Georgetown Christian. Hey, is anybody else worried about Dr. Striegel's delete button? Hoosiers, Cleveland Browns, Celtics, that's rough. Okay, so a new year is full of, uh, yeah, it's the 14th, so it's still full of new habits. Uh, We all have hope for new goals and, and that by way of these new habits and these new goals that we're going to have brand new lives. You're going to have, I would say by like June, if you can keep it up with those habits and goals, uh, you're going to have a fully funded IRA. You're probably going to have a six pack. And uh, if you're really stuck to those goals, maybe you'll have that shiny new sports car that you're really hoping that you can save up and find just the right deal to have. But for Christians, uh, we're also aware that a new year means a, a fresh opportunity to commit ourselves to the ways of the Lord that make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's why so many believers gather at the very beginning of the calendar. It's why it's hard to find a seat in January in a lot of churches. It's because we want to be more like Jesus. So last week we began this series called First because as we we seek to put God's ways first in our lives, we struggle through all of the challenges of what does that practically look like? What are the steps I take? Because going to a Bible study every night of the week isn't making me any more like Jesus. In fact, I'm eating fast food because I'm going from work straight to Bible study, and now I'm fatter, even though I might know just a little bit more about the Bible. So it's not working for us to figure out how do we put God first in every area of our lives. So we've started a series called First. And it's based on the idea that Jesus teaches that we're to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and then all of these other things that you and I are concerned about will be added to us. That does not mean free sports cars. It does mean, however, that Jesus has identified this very clear vision for what it looks like to be a believer, and that is to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And because we're very intent on becoming more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, then you and I are journeying through Scripture to learn from the mistakes of other people like those Israelites how we may more intentionally and practically shape our lives that we may be made into the image of Jesus. So if you'll recall last week, and if you weren't here, you're so lucky you get the 60-second recap. So last week was uh, these Israelites and all of their problems. During the time of Haggai, uh, they had returned from captivity in Babylon. They had not rebuilt the temple, and they had plenty of time during which they could have rebuilt the temple, but they did not choose to do so. Instead, what the Israelites did. It's very easy for us to identify the problems in other people's lives, right? So we'll just talk about those Israelites. They made excuses and they 
We're very selfish. And so kind of where we wrapped up with Haggai last week was that they were prophesied by the prophet Haggai to consider carefully your ways. So that's how we wrapped up last week, put a bow on it and said, the Israelites needed to carefully consider their way. So this text that we're in today is another of what we call the minor prophets. And his name is Malachi. And he prophesied to the same people, only it was the same nation. It just wasn't the same exact people. It was probably their great-grandchildren, maybe their grandchildren, but approximately the same time, about 80 years after Haggai and also Zechariah, contemporary prophets together, they both prophesied to these people, the Israelites. But when we encounter them today, they're even worse than they were when we were with them last week, which was about 80-ish years ago. Everybody close your ears just for a second. Hey, Tanya, would you check on our elementary helpers, please? Okay, you guys can open your ears back up. Sorry. That's earmuffs. I know you guys need earmuffs. Okay, so we're in, the, we're in the same sort of era. It's about 80 years after, however, that Haggai had prophesied. Now Malachi's prophesying. So grab your Bibles and let's go through real quickly how you're going to find Malachi. If you're new at uh, Bible opening and finding, especially at Minor Prophets, we'll just go like halfway and this should land you in the Psalms. I'm in Proverbs, which is adjacent to Psalms. So you got halfway. Then take this side and just go like halfway again. You'll probably wind up in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, a gospel. So if you're somewhere in one of those, just turn back this way like a little, just a few pages. You'll be in Malachi, and it's super tiny. So you're going to miss it, and you'll wind up in like somebody else in Aya something. And so you just want to come forward. If you hit Matthew, then just go back like a page. Boom, Malachi. And you want to be in chapter number three. So the, the people that Malachi is he's prophesying to, as you turn to chapter 3, I said they were worse off than they were before. If you weren't here last week, you don't know how they were. Life was returning to normal. They could still say things like normal and new normal, and nobody would be triggered. But now that's in the past, and things have kind of even taken a, a bit more of a, a dive. They're, they're living, this is the practical outcome of their living under a curse. And here's what it looked like for them to live under a curse. They were, uh, they were without the crops that they would typically have. So if you had a field that would yield 100 bushel, it's now yielding 20 bushel, and you're not selling any extra grain, you're not storing it in any kind of barn, you don't have a barn, you don't need a barn, you don't have a silo, because you got basically just enough to survive. And the people were frustrated, because they'd rebuilt the temple. Remember under Haggai, under Zechariah, they'd finally rebuilt the temple. And the promises of all of this uh, amazing life, they were supposed to be, uh, (coughs) they were supposed to experience prosperity, They were supposed to experience other nations turning now to the Lord. They were were supposed to experience the presence of God in a new way. 
but they had not experienced that. This is going to be one of those where I just got to take drinks of water like the whole time. <coughs> All right, you boys up here, you're on notice. You may be having to read a little bit, okay? <coughs> Maybe. We'll see. No, would you come get this microphone? <coughs> These guys are so excited right now to get to read. You have no idea. They're psyched. You can sit down there for it. Thank you. <laughs> Although your hair looks awesome. I'm sure you should be on stage. It's better than my hair. Way better than my hair. So these prophecies <clears throat> of Malachi, they are they're after the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And they're after the time that the Israelites were supposed to be all done being selfish and making excuses. And they're supposed to have by now considered their ways. But if, if we look at their lives, they're destitute. They're living in depravity. What they want is for them to be a, a powerful nation. And yet what they have is they're ruled by a foreign king is ruling them. And so we're just zooming into one chapter out of many in Malachi, and we're zooming into one problem because I think these Israelites were experiencing something you and I have experienced, and that is we put in all the work and we're not seeing the results we want to see. <clears throat> now, the, the temple, remember, the, they're probably their grandparents, rebuilt that temple. It's about 50 years since the completion of that temple that Malachi arrives on the scene. The people are spiritually corrupt. The priesthood is even more corrupt than the people. And the people are sad that they're not wealthy and powerful like the other nations. <laughs> So that's where we are when we start in verse 6 of chapter 3. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Good news, guys. You're not dead. Ever since the time of your ancestors, just like Aaron said, for thousands of years, ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. A picture of repentance. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal, will just a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, well, how are we robbing you? Here's the answer. In tithes and offerings, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. If you've got a garden, this sounds just amazing. I would love this says the Lord Almighty, then all the nations will call you blessed. <clears throat> For yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> it wasn't this fun in first service, yowza. I'm going to make it, because it's better than you guys watching the replay on YouTube. So the people that are hearing this 
are old enough now to be raised in their old families. There's about no chance they were alive when the temple was rebuilt. Unlikely. It was probably finished before they were born. But somehow, just like their grandparents, they're living in a state of spiritual depravity. Somehow, they're still living the same way that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents lived. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but they felt like, you know, they'd really done everything God asked. They'd rebuilt the temple. It's right there. Look at the temple. It's rebuilt. Why are we not blessed now? I don't know if you've ever felt that way, maybe at work, where your boss asked you to do A, B, and C. That's in your job description. You got to do it. And you did it, and you did it well. And then you went on to, to do D and E. You're helping other people with their projects. And you never even get noticed where you just feel exasperated. Ugh, you want to grit your teeth. Or maybe if, if you're like a typical person in January, you've been putting in the time on that cardio. And you have burned up that app. You've counted every calorie. I mean, even the fries in the bottom of the bag. You've counted them all. And you've been very diligent about maybe doing a devotion on the way to work or at night before bed. And you just can't figure out, like, why, why is my life still such a disaster? Maybe you can relate to these Israelites. <clears throat> but Malachi 3 isn't just about... God or the, the priests, as wicked as they were, the, the temple needing God's money to come back into it. And Malachi isn't talking about how the Israelites, if they would just give a dollar, they're going to get 15, like some sort of a spiritual Ponzi scheme. Malachi is prophesying about the same thing that Haggai was prophesying about, which is why we're in the book, and that is that the people must trust God completely. They must trust him in every area. And through the book of Malachi, you can see six different areas where God calls through Malachi for Israel to put their trust wholly into him. It's why we go through a series through multiple Sundays where we talk about all of the ways that we have to place our trust exclusively in the Lord. But that takes practical steps. And those practical steps look today like giving. Our giving reflects our heart. Our giving or our lack of reflects our heart. Uh, the Proverbs writer says it this way, one person gives freely yet gains even more and another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. You see, the Israelites have for years been withholding. They've been hoarding from God, and that was a reflection of the condition of their hearts. And their hearts were faithless. They were chasing the wives of other nations. They were building bigger bank accounts or trying and failing at it. And they were, they were giving lip service to God in the temple, but in their hearts, they really wanted to, to just have that, that superpower feeling of being a sovereign nation, to be recognized among all the other nations 
as though someone like Solomon or David were in charge again. And they would have that notoriety for being some very powerful nation. But they didn't have that. They had desperation. They had depravity. They had a disconnection from God. And God promises, and this is just chapter 3 of Malachi, but God promises that if they are to return their first fruits, Georgetown, I want you to say it with me, first fruits. If they were to return their first fruits to God, he would restore the blessing that they're missing. But they kept hoarding it. The drought would be over. The pests wouldn't destroy their crops. The vine wouldn't even drop the fruit in the field. They would be so wildly prosperous if they could only learn to trust God in this many practical ways, but for today, one way, <clears throat> in giving the first fruits of their tithes and offerings. Not what was left, not what at the end of the month they could gather up, but their first fruits. Georgetown, I wonder what our lives would be like if we were to give our very first fruits to God as an offering. I wonder how dramatically different our lives would be. I wonder if possibly our hands could look like this and it's impossible for us then to receive a blessing from God when we're looking at him like this. How can a person receive a blessing from God with clenched fists? Remember, Jesus said that it's better to give than to receive. So our point number one, we have two points today. Our point number one is giving or lack of is a reflection of the heart. So we want to give God the first fruits. Now, while you're turning to Matthew chapter 23, I want you to turn to your neighbor and assure them we're not passing the plate. Okay, while you guys turn, you can tell them that we're not passing the plate. And that's really because we never pass the plate anymore. They just sit in the back. And so if you have an offering, you can put it there. But if you're a guest, I'll tell you now and I'll tell you later, keep your money. <clears throat> Do not today give an offering because that will be an offering under compulsion. And Paul will address that here in a little bit. We're turning to Matthew 23. <clears throat> While you turn there, um, a quick story. A farmer's cows gave birth to twin bull calves. And he was delighted because there were so much more than just a cow calves. And, and so since he had two, he decided that he was going to sell one when it was full grown and give the proceeds to the Lord. However, one of the calves, one of the calves as they're growing up, begins to grow sickly. And he watches it and he tends it and he tries to help it and he jabs it with all the drugs and he gives it all the food and carry can, but he just can't save the cow. It dies. And so he trudges into the house, sad. He says to his wife, you'll never guess what just happened. The Lord's calf died. <laughs> We've got to give God the first fruits, or we'll end up like the farmer. Some believe, uh, so in Christian, Christianity, there's a, a wide variety of interpretations of the Old and New Testaments. And so some believe that the tithe stopped 
and the old covenant and was replaced in the new covenant by just worship offerings or, or offerings that aren't specifically a tithe like we saw in the Old Testament. And I would invite those of you who love to hold on to that as a reason to not give and consider the words of Jesus. So if you have other reasons for holding on to that, feel free to hold tightly. If it's because you do not want to give, I will tell you today, you may be missing out on God's blessings. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 23. And this is really hard to hear from Jesus because he's really angry. But just imagine when he says Pharisee, that he says preacher. And imagine me with a fancy jet, and you do have to imagine that. I am fresh out of fancy jets. But it's not too hard to imagine in our culture. Imagine a fancy jet and a whole barn full of fancy sports cars. And imagine me standing up here and telling you who don't have a private jet or a barn full of fancy sports cars how you should be giving. Okay, that's, that's why this sounds so harsh from Jesus. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you're careful to tithe even the tiniest of income from your herb gardens. If you have a herb garden, even if you live in the most tightly packed subdivision in Floyd County, you can't see your neighbor's herb garden from your window. Herb gardens are tiny. They're wee. And these guys are careful to tithe from their herb gardens. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice mercy, and faith. And you, uh, I want you to read this with me, Georgetown, just so everybody's on the same page, just these three words. You should tithe. Now, this is Jesus talking to the religious leaders who are being mega dirtbags and telling other people how holy they should be. Yes, but do not neglect, neglect the more important things. And those were what? Justice, mercy, and faith. Now, Jesus expected the Pharisees to continue giving what? The tithe. He expected that. It's crystal clear. You can argue with, I don't know, the Bible, but I don't want to hear your argument. It says it right here. And then he says you should continue giving God the first fruits. But notice what he says they're missing. He says they're missing the more important things they're missing justice, mercy, and faith. And he doesn't say forget tithing and go after these. He says, yeah, do that. But you've entirely missed. Just like Israelites who built a temple and then went on to live lives entirely devoid of God. The Pharisees, now these are the leaders of the church. The teachers have forgotten what it looks like to live for God. Jesus goes on, blind guides, you strain the water so you won't swallow a gnat, and you swallow a whole camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy. You're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and the outside will become clean too. Friends, these are Jesus' words to me. 
the preacher, the religious leader, the Pharisee, the guy who's supposed to look like he's got it all together. And maybe, you know what? Maybe even Chris Tanner has at times in his life felt very proud about the fact that he was giving a tithe, that it was at the top of my budget. But do you know what my righteousness is worth? Nothing. It's worth nothing to begin with. But if I've forgotten, and I have, justice and mercy and faith, it's worthless. He doesn't want me to give his money back to him. He wants nothing to do with it. If I don't have mercy and justice and faith, Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, Listen to this powerful imagery. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. While giving is a reflection of our hearts, Jesus makes no room, Jesus makes no room for our giving to somehow absolve us of sin. Some of you guys uh, may not have work tomorrow. Anybody off work? You don't have to raise your hands. Anybody off work? Yeah, in the back, of course, you raise your hands. Yes, that's fine. And, And so you're super psyched. You're out of school. It's really nice outside, and you can't wait to enjoy the day. Some of you are like, where does he live? Tomorrow we have a a day off of work or off of school because of a guy named Martin Luther who fought for the rights of people who were considered not people. Well, he's named after another guy named Martin Luther. And you know what Martin Luther, who Martin Luther King Jr. was named after, do you know what he was famous for? This was about 500-ish years ago that that Martin Luther, he was a priest at the time, He'd done some time as a monk. He was a priest. He was also a professor at a university. And his his heart's desire was to see the church, all of us, to look just like the bride that Jesus deserves. The bride that, that Paul describes as being washed and pure and white. And he wanted to see that. But at the time, guess what the church had begun accepting? Of his 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, of the 95 theses, almost half were specifically against something called indulgences. Everybody say indulgences. And what on earth is an indulgence? It's very simply put, an indulgence is something where we're never doing this, but where this church at the time would accept money and would give you a written pardon from your sin. Do you see what they're doing there? They're saying, if you pay us money, we will erase your sin. That sounds to me like a job for somebody that, I don't know, Jesus? Maybe that's a job for Jesus. And I know it sounds so insane, but if giving is a reflection of our hearts or the lack of, uh, then, <clears throat> then it's also true that like the Pharisees, giving can still be a reflection of our hearts, even when, like your pastor, you've been a very regular giver, but 
you've ignored justice and you've behaved faithlessly and you've never once offered your neighbor, your friend, your family, mercy. But no matter whether we're a tither or not a tither, or we give extra, <clears throat> giving, or the lack of, is a reflection of our hearts. We're on to <clears throat> number two. We only have two points today. Giving is a response to the gospel. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 if giving is a response to the gospel, then uh, we should then see it in Jesus' life. Some of you probably heard John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, say this next one with me, that he gave, the end, he gave. Okay, so he loved, so he gave. If Giving is a response to the gospel. We should see it in Jesus' life. Matthew chapter 28, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to, what does it say, Georgetown? And to give his life as a ransom for many. So giving is a response to the gospel. We see this here, and we're going to see it. This is our last big segment of Scripture before we wrap up. We see it in uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, and what is indicated in Paul's letter to the Corinthians is that giving was a standard. Giving was an expectation. Giving was normal, and it wasn't just for the church in Corinth. Giving in the new covenant, giving in new churches, that they had to have been less than 20 years old. These churches, giving was the standard across all these churches, across all the lives of the people who comprised each of these churches about which we'll read here. <clears throat> Verse 1, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. Just really quickly, Paul out of the gate says, I actually don't even need to write to you about this ministry of, what is it? Giving, right? It's, it's a foregone conclusion. You guys already understand this. You guys already get, it's already a habit. It's already a regular fixture in the life of the church. Okay, so he doesn't even need to write about it. But for I know how eager you are to help and I have been boasting to the churches in Macedonia that you all in Greece were ready to send an offering a whole year ago. In fact, it was your enthusiasm that stirred up so many of the Macedonian believers to also begin giving. So we see that the Macedonians are giving because of the eagerness, the third grader who can't stay in their chair because they went to teacher calling so bad, the eagerness of the Corinthian church to give. You see, our generosity... When we're giving with a cheerful heart, our giving as a response to the gospel is contagious. Now, we should not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. We should not come up front at the end of the sermon and say, uh, Pastor, I'm just up here because I'd like to give a bunch of money. 
Uh, that is not a thing that we need to do. In fact, Jesus says, don't do it. But our generosity, and if you've been a part of a fundraising campaign or you've ever tuned into WayFM, you've heard, if you call right now, there's a matching donation. And when you hear match, if you're like me, man, I would love to give you five bucks because it's now 10 bucks. Our giving, our generosity is contagious. And giving is a response to the gospel. Let's go on in verse three. But I'm sending these brothers to be sure that you really are ready, as I've been telling them, and your money is all collected. I don't want to be wrong in my boasting about you. We would be embarrassed, not to mention your embarrassment, if some Macedonian believers came with me and found out, really, you weren't ready after I told them. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready, but I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. That's why if you're a guest today, you're not allowed to give. I don't have anyone to watch the plate or tell if you're a guest, and I don't know how that all works out, but just don't. So please, just don't. Because the Bible said so, not because I'm your boss, okay? Because giving should be cheerful and planned. We see right here, Paul has the expectation for the believers in Corinth, number one, that they're already giving. Number two, that it is out of a cheerful heart. Number three, that it is planned giving. I'm guessing some of you have made a, a plan for your money. I like to make a plan for my money. It makes me very excited to open up a Google Sheet and to make a plan for money. And it's way more exciting. And raise your hand if this is true for you. It is way more exciting to make the plan for money than it is to follow the plan for the money. I really, I really, uh, I don't like the following it part, but I love to make the plan for the money. So I really hope you've brought your own scriptures because I want you to write in the margins when we get to the, the, these verses that are coming up. But you've got to underline cheerful. You've got to underline cheerful. I do not, I want it to be a willing gift, not one given grudgingly. <laughs> So whenever we make a plan, we make a plan for our giving. That means that in our, in our budget, that we're going to give God the first fruits. That means the budget is going to go at the, I'm sorry, the giving is going to go at the top of the budget. And the, the eating out, because we don't have to eat out, it's going to go at the bottom of the budget. And that's the part where for me, when I put it on there, it's really easy. And then when I have to live it out, it's so much harder because I just want to eat cheeseburgers and tacos so much. But if we want to experience growth in the likeness of the image of Jesus as a body, as an individual believer, then we have to give God our first fruits, which means we have to give cheerfully, we have to give purposefully, we have to give with a plan. We give as a response to the gospel, and I would encourage you, put it at the top of your budget, start with 10%, and the sky is the limit from there. And you'll see why in just a second. Some of you are thinking, you're a psycho, but we'll just see why in a second, because right now your hope, your hope, we're gonna find out where our hope is. So three-year-old Patsy, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but three-year-old Patsy, she was in worship with her parents sitting there, and as they'd come in, she didn't notice that her parents put their offering in the tray when they came in. She didn't see that. And so the tray is now being passed. And it's coming pew by pew. It's about to arrive at Patsy. And she starts to lean over to mom and say, Mom, I don't have any money. 
And if you've ever heard a three-year-old be quiet in church, it sounded exactly like that. I don't have any money. I need money. Give me some money for the basket, mom. I need money for the basket. And mom tries to explain. And if you have ever tried to reason or apply logic in the mind or heart of a three-year-old, you know the futility of Patsy's mom. It was not going to happen. So she's telling Patsy, we already gave. And Patsy's having a mild stroke. And the basket arrives. And wouldn't you know it, in Patsy's little grubby fingers, she receives the basket, no money from mom, And she exclaims in front of the whole church, loud enough for everybody to hear, well, we're out of money. (laughs) We all feel that way when we don't plan to give, when we aren't prepared, when it isn't a habit, when it isn't a practical step of our becoming more and more like Jesus by planning to give cheerfully what we've decided in our hearts. Giving God's the first fruit is not only a reflection of our heart, but it's a response to the gospel. And when we plan to give, we don't have to say like Patsy, well, all out of money. Let's continue in verse six. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. This is this underlined city here, folks. I mean, if you've got the pen ready, and it's your Bible, not the pew Bible. You want to go nuts on the underlines here. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Now, I've in fact maybe accidentally like reverse like tricked you into giving today, which is why you can't give, okay? So if you're a guest, you're not allowed to give today, and it's because the Bible said it and not me. I told you it was going to be there, and there it is right there. You cannot give in response to pressure. So keep your dollar. I promise you that God does not need it here at this church, and I promise you that he will show you somewhere he needs it. So you can give that wherever it's needed as long as you give it. How does Paul say? Cheerfully. And that doesn't mean with a smile. I mean, you probably should smile, but it means that you should be decided in your heart that you can freely, willfully, and with a happy heart give this money that you've planned to give. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Right here. This is where we see that giving is a reflection of the heart, or though it should be. It should reflect the condition of our heart. When we give God our first fruits, we're deciding to cheerfully give in response to the gospel. A panhandler was, uh, he was panhandling, and he uh, held out his cup and asked for money when a woman was passing by. She stopped and he gets excited. She opens her coin purse, pulls out a dollar bill and hands it to him. And she says, as she's handing him the dollar, now I'm not giving this to you because you deserve it, but I'm giving this to you because it makes me happy. And so the panhandler says, ma'am, I thank you, but why don't you just make yourself extra happy and give me 10 more dollars? We don't give reluctantly, but cheerfully as a response to the gospel. Verse 8, and God will generously provide all you need. So where does the providence come from for our lives? We're going to say it together. The answer is God. Where does the providence for our lives come from? God. That's right. It only comes from God. It's tricky though because the paycheck says Acme Corp, but it doesn't come from Acme Corp. It comes from God. So the next time you open your budget, this is what you have to write. 2 Corinthians 
chapter niner, verses seven through nine. It helps you and it helps me become crystal clear about where everything we have, everything we receive, it becomes crystal clear if it's at the top of our budget where everything comes from. It comes from God. He is our provider. But as long as we're thinking like an Israelite, those morons, as long as we're stashing and hoarding and excuse-making and selfish living, we are never going to experience what Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Verse 9, as the scriptures say, they share freely and they give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. It is not so that it could be increased so you can build a bigger barn and add additional sports cars. Uh, I want to let you know that if you were the person who drove a sports car today on that icy road, uh, this is not necessarily about you. This is definitely about trying to give God more money so you get more money so you can build your kingdom. Because remember the question, the bottom line for this whole series, how do we become more like Jesus? What do our goals need to look like this year? And we decided it was to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, not to build our kingdoms up. That's why we have to consider carefully our ways. That's why we want to recognize that giving is a reflection of our hearts and that giving is a response to the gospel. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when, we <clears throat> and when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they'll joyfully express their thanks to God. So our giving is a response to the gospel. It's a, it's a reflection of our hearts. And when the Corinthians gave, when the Macedonians gave, the result was that the people in Jerusalem gave thanks to God. So who in this whole story, in this whole orchestration of Israelites and Malachi and Haggai and Corinthians and Pharisees, and who is it that received all of the glory when people with right hearts began to give as though giving was a response to gospel? And the answer is God. So say it with me, God. He got all of the glory because we chose to give back some of what he provides for us. Verse 13, as a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity <clears throat> to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Jesus Christ. In other words, that you're obedient to the gospel. A, re a natural response then is giving. One time a skeptic said to a preacher, I can't stand this Christianity business because it seems like all it sounds like is give, give, give. And the preacher thought a minute and he said, I think that's a really good description of Christianity, to be fair. It is give, give, give. Fully devoted followers of Jesus give their 
first fruits. That this year we're putting God first. We're putting him first in our everyday individual lives, not just we're inside these walls, but when we wake up. When we've got to consider a priority in life and weigh out where it fits. When we go through a budget and right at the top, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 9, when we try to decide, will this be a cheerful heart out of which I'm giving? Or when we try to decide, like, I have to wrestle with constantly. Giving's not an issue, but I'll tell you what is. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, those are issues. How is my heart as I plan to give this, this first fruit to God? We give not to earn anything from God. We'll earn nothing by, by giving. We're not going to earn a single bit of the salvation that you and I receive freely when we place our faith in Jesus. So it's come to that time where maybe you did start coming to church because you thought, you know, uh, things have to be different this year. And I'm telling you, you're here for a reason. Because God has put it on your heart to place yourself Amongst the community of Christ, this is his very body. We consume his body, and in some kind of a mystery, we are joined into him as believers, as the body of Christ. And I will tell you this, that as an individual that is not a member, an active participant in the body of Christ, you are not living with Christ as your Lord. You're living with fire insurance, which God knows I need. You're living in the faint hope that maybe he's going to remember that one time I was like, yeah, Jesus is my dude. But you're living entirely for yourself. Maybe the Israelites come to mind. You're living as though you can continue to establish your priorities so that your kingdom can increase. And yet, it's not working out. Your kingdom... Well, it's not so great. And you've decided that something has to change. Friends, if that's you today, I invite you to take the next step. Place your membership. Membership classes in two weeks. If that's you today and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, then the invitation is open to join me up front or meet with our next steps counselors in the lobby. But friends, don't leave today having decided to get out on a day that's literally ignorant cold and don't leave on a, a, a day that you've decided to change your life without changing it. The Holy Spirit has drawn you to a body that, as Jeff and Andrea testified this morning, changes people's lives into the very image of Jesus. That happens here, not by anything I do, not by anything special people somewhere else he'll, here will do, but by His Word and by the power of His Spirit at work in your life. He will change you into His image. But you have to take that step. Whatever that is for you today, I invite you to bow your heads as we pray. Father, give us the courage to give you the first fruits. Father, giving is a reflection of our hearts. It's a response to the gospel. And Father, it is a clear path forward for us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Father, would you empower each of us to give 
cheerfully, in a way that is planned. Father, we know it's expected and we know that when we live in obedience to your word that you bring blessing to our lives and we thank you for the blessing that you're going to bring because of our obedience. Father, for those givers who are regular givers like myself, Father, would you forgive us of our pride? If, if that's true for a regular giver, I, I ask that they would be seeking the same forgiveness for that sin, of forgetting faithfulness or forgetting justice or for forgetting to seek mercy. Father, in, in each of our hearts, would you fashion us more into the image of your Son for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.